This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Illinois 18th District Representative Darren LaHood. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer is helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Health for all, hunger for none. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Darren LaHood next. As a leader in the industry, we at Bayer have the opportunity and responsibility to help address the challenges around sustainability and ensure that we can all thrive while using our planet's resources in a sustainable way. Sustainability is an integral part of our operations, and we believe that farmers and agriculture can be a part of the solution to many of the planet's biggest challenges. Whether that's helping growers utilize new technologies to get more out of their land, or incentivizing carbon-smart practices such as strip-till or no-till and planting cover crops, we're committed to innovate, grow, and partner with farmers to help shape what's possible and further our vision of health for all, hunger for none. For more on Bayer's sustainability efforts, visit cropscience.bayer.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Last week in Washington, the Senate Finance Committee and House Ways and Means Committee considered funding alternatives for President Biden's climate infrastructure package. Illinois 18th District Representative Darren LaHood favors investment in roads, bridges, airports, and inland waterways, but is staunchly opposed to changing the tax code to pay for it. I have real concerns about funding infrastructure through fundamentally changing the tax code and particularly with stepped-up basis, and I referenced that in my questions to a number of my Democrat colleagues. First of all, the changes that are proposed by Biden to the stepped-up base will severely affect the family farmers in my district and family-owned businesses, and that's the first point. Second point is we have never funded infrastructure other than looking at a user fee. For instance, uh, we have a federal gas tax that goes into an infrastructure fund and, and funds our roads and bridges. We have user fees that you pay at airports or you pay on a rapid transit system or a rail system that goes into infrastructure. To think now we're going to change stepped-up basis and tax people more and then use that to pay for infrastructure is, to me, a complete distortion of our tax code. And so I talked about that in our hearing. Jeff, I'm all for infrastructure, and in the five years that I've been fortunate to have been in Congress, I talk about infrastructure and how we need it, and I want to find a way to do that but not by changing stepped-up basis or raising taxes on the uh, personal uh, tax increases on individuals or changing the corporate rate. Really, uh, what Democrats want to do is dismantle the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which we passed three years ago and which was responsible for the best economy in my lifetime. I- I'm all for infrastructure. We need it. I need it in my district. But let's figure out a bipartisan way to do that, like we have every other infrastructure bill we've passed over the last 25 years. On this program, we had Senator Dick Durbin. He suggested that the president was open to compromise. So I would be curious, uh, inside the Ways and Means Committee, do you see any path of compromise? Well, I see some glimmers of hope, Jeff. And and listen, I'm open-minded on how we do that. But again... um, Let's let's do it in the traditional way we fund infrastructure. I think you're not going to find bipartisanship, again, if you 
if you go the route of stepped-up basis, we'll see what happens. I think the next month will be key to that. I know some of my colleagues have been trying to work with the Biden administration on finding that path to a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And, and again, I'm open-minded. I hope that's the direction we go. But if you're going to fund it through stepped-up basis and other taxes, you're not going to find a lot of support from Republicans. It seems that the stepped-up basis, while it provides an opportunity to create revenue, is a strike at the very core of the American dream for those families that have worked so hard to build farms and those families that have built small businesses. No doubt about it, Jeff. Uh, and, and in addition to my comments last week, I authored a letter that went to, um, helped author a letter that went to President Biden explaining that. And I had many of my colleagues, Republicans and Democrats, signed that letter that talked exactly what, what you just mentioned there. I mean, you know, to think about the, the work and the effort and the generational blood, sweat, and tears that, that go into family farms, to think that heirs uh, to the family farm are going to be stuck with this huge tax bill is really a disincentive to going into family farming and a real deviation from our tax code, particularly how you fund infrastructure. But it's going to hurt the family farm all across this country and family-owned businesses. And so I'm going to continue to push back and be resistant. And a lot of my colleagues that represent rural areas are going to do the same thing. So the Biden administration, though, does suggest that they're offering an exemption, uh, especially for farms, as long as the land stays in the farm. How do you receive that talk of exemption? Well, again, I'm dubious of that, Jeff. I'm skeptical of that action. So, uh, listen, I think you stay away from changing stepped-up bases, period. And remember, many of these family farms and these operations, I mean, their margins are very, very thin. Uh, It depends from year to year on how things go and the weather and all these things. This is the last thing that farmers want to be worried about is stepped-up basis and these huge changes to it. So let's take the topic and turn it the other way. Obviously, there are infrastructure needs in the country, and I suppose there are some questions about what should be in an infrastructure package. But if you just go with uh, airports, roads, and bridges, what happens for this nation if we don't start to invest in infrastructure now? Well, listen, our competitors around the world are going to, they are already investing in infrastructure, and so... Uh, the more we go with um, without fixing up our roads and our bridges and our locks and dams, um, you know we're gonna we're gonna continue to suffer from a safety standpoint and from a uh, commercial aspect. Getting our products to market is super important, whether you're in agriculture or manufacturing, and we have an obligation and a responsibility to invest in infrastructure. The second thing is, um, how do you define infrastructure? You just defined it, I think, the way that most Americans do, Jeff. We all know highways and roads and bridges and our locks and dams. Maybe you throw in some broadband. But what is an infrastructure is what some of my Democrat colleagues are now talking about, which is public housing, health care, child care. This is not traditional infrastructure. And so you've had a, um, a hijacking of the, of the term infrastructure. And frankly, I don't think you're going to find bipartisanship when you're throwing all these other things in there to define infrastructure. The other point that I would make, you know, every nickel and dime that we take from taxpayers to go in for infrastructure, whether it's through the federal gas tax or vehicle miles travel or some type of user fee, we got to put it into a lockbox and make sure that it gets spent on infrastructure. Many of my constituents, I have concerns when you give money to the federal government and it goes into some big black hole and never gets spent on roads and bridges back in their district, 
putting this money into a lockbox, making sure that the money is only spent on infrastructure. Again, we have an obligation and responsibility to do that, and that has to be part of an infrastructure bill. I know that you're a member of the Joint Economic Committee, and I'm just curious whether it's needed or whether it's not. Can the nation afford another $2 trillion package and added to the debt? Absolutely not. The reason why I voted against the $2 trillion bill that Biden passed you know, two months ago was because it was way too much money and it wasn't bipartisan. It got not, it didn't get one Republican vote in the House or one Republican vote in the Senate. Now remember, last year I proudly supported all five bipartisan bills that were needed to get through the coronavirus pandemic, both from the health care standpoint and also on the economic standpoint. But to pass another two trillion dollars, a lot of that going to unemployment insurance and stimulus checks and spending a lot of money um, that, that, frankly, I don't think we needed. And we're seeing uh, the results now because you're beginning to see inflation and, and you can't find people to work. The number one issue that I hear, Jeff, is they don't, restaurants don't have enough workers. Manufacturers don't have enough uh, folks in their factories. You can't find people for landscaping jobs. So people are disincentivized to work because they're getting too much money through the federal government. Secondarily, on an infrastructure bill, I think the sweet spot for that is somewhere between six hundred billion and nine hundred billion on infrastructure. Um, I think you'll find bipartisan support as long as it's funded through traditional means of funding infrastructure. But anything more than that, I think again is wasteful spending, and again will add to the debt. You partnered with uh, Indiana Congresswoman Walorski about a piece of legislation to help the unemployed get back in the workforce. What's the nature of the bill, and how does it address this issue? As as you discussed, what what we've said is we gotta we gotta incentivize people to go back to work, and actually we've seen this with governors. Some governors around the country have refused to take the federal unemployment insurance money to do that. And what our bill says is we ought to put standards in place on how we dole out uh, unemployment insurance. You've got to look at the factors, um, you know, with the economy and how this is going to add to inflation. And, you know, clearly we ought to help people that are in need, people that are unemployed, people that can't work. We're all for that. But, but, just um, spending money to spend money is not the proper way to do that. And so we put some parameters in place in our legislation as it relates to unemployment insurance to kind of uh, make sure that we're having proper oversight, to make sure that the unemployment insurance is spent in an effective, efficient, and accountable way because it is taxpayer money in the end. Congressman, what are your thoughts on the Biden climate agenda? And with regard to agriculture, is it a challenge or is it an opportunity? Well, let me just start off with a, with a kind of a broad statement and say that, um, you know, I have one of the largest ag districts in the country. Our district's the eighth largest in terms of corn and soybean production. And farmers are the best stewards of our land from my perspective. Um, and I also um, am amazed uh, every time I'm back in my district when I go visit a family farm how innovative, um, how focused they are on conservation, uh, how mo- uh, they're always looking to modernize. When we think about climate change, and and many of my colleagues in Washington, D.C. have all these ideas, but they don't understand rural America or agriculture. What I want to see when we talk about climate or the New Green Deal, or there's been a lot of talk about carbon neutral, net zero, um, carbon capture, these things are all good conversations to have, and we want to make sure that we have the cleanest environment possible. 
But what I don't think works is when you have mandates from Washington, D.C., and kind of one size fits all. we got to make sure that we let the free market system work. We let competition work. And I think where you've seen that, you have a lot of good innovation. You have farmers wanting to make the right decisions. But mandates don't work. I use the example of Waters of the U.S., which was put in place as an executive order by the Obama administration, but they couldn't get it passed through the legislative process. But that is something that I think disproportionately affected our farmers in terms of regulating every puddle or wetland or or lake or stream. You know, that's the wrong approach to take. And so um, I think working with our agriculture community when it comes to green technology, when it comes to carbon neutral policies and conservation policies, those are all good things to look at, but again, let's look how the free market system plays in, and we have some really good ideas on that, uh, on how we find a collaborative way to do that, but the one-size-fits-all, the mandates, um, I don't think are the right approach to take. Secretary Vilsack stands staunchly behind President Biden's 30 by 30 plan. Do you see that as a benefit, or do you fear that as a land grab? I think it's a land grab. I, I don't think that's the right approach to take. I think if you talk to farmers in my district, regardless of their political ideology, when they look at that, they have real concerns about what the federal government is doing. And I think you've seen, well, I've heard that from a number of my ag groups, too. So I I hope that um, there's consultation um, and collaboration and, and working with the agricultural community and rural America on that. I am and many of my constituents are, are dubious and skeptical of the federal government when it comes to managing land. One of the popular ideas is that farmers might be rewarded for sustainable farming practices and sequestering carbon and other greenhouse gases. My question for you is how much government should be involved in that? Should it all be private enterprise? Should it all be government? Or, or what's the right ratio? If you look at America in general when it comes to clean technology and innovation and what we've done for the environment, I mean, you look back 25 years ago and all the progress we've made in this country with the private sector leading the way. Our air is cleaner, our water is cleaner, our land is better. Um, we have gotten better, uh, but not through government necessarily, Jeff. It's been through the private sector and advancing. My concern about things like the Paris Climate Accord or these international agreements is many of our competitors and adversaries, particularly China, I mean, China continues to build coal-powered power plants. They continue to not abide by the same rules and international norms that we do and other industrialized countries do. And so when I look at countries like China and India and Pakistan that, you know, supposedly are part of these international agreements but don't abide by any of them, that really concerns me. And so um, I guess my point on it is relying on the private sector and the free enterprise system and government having a light touch on that, I think they can give direction. I think they can help. I think they can incentivize. I look at the Ways and Means Committee where I serve at, tax credits, tax incentives, uh, incentivizing that type of environmental approach, I think is a good one and can work and be very productive. But the heavy-handed oversight of the federal government, I don't think is a good recipe for that. Senator Braun from Indiana was on this program uh, just a few weeks ago. And he said he felt like that inside the infrastructure plan, the Biden administration was picking favorites, favoring electric vehicles over liquid fuel, and the fact that we're spending money to develop uh, infrastructure for more charging stations for electric cars, but we're not doing anything for soy biodiesel and ethanol. When we look at 
our energy policy and we look at the policy around EV and electric vehicles. And by the way, Jeff, I, um, Rivian Automotive is in McLean County, Illinois. It's going to be producing some of the first electric SUVs, electric trucks, electric vans. And it's, it's right there in uh, the middle of a cornfield in McLean County. But what I would say, Jeff, is we have to have a all-of-the-above approach, but we can't be picking winners and losers in this process. Everybody needs to be treated equally. And, uh, you know, I have some of the largest ethanol producers uh, that are located in my district. Um, and I think about biodiesel, I think about ethanol, and the positive impact that it has on, on the environment. Uh, what it does for jobs, um, what it, and, and again, uh, the largest dry mill ethanol plant is, is located in my district, and they're about ready to implement uh, a carbon capture program there that's going to make them carbon neutral, all done on their own without any government input. My point on it is, yes, we we got to make sure that the Biden administration is looking out for the best interests of biodiesel, and ethanol, and, and, and remind them of the important environmental benefits of that, particularly when, when energy prices are going up and uh, we continue to be reliant on energy from around the world. We have homegrown energy here through our ethanol and biodiesel. We need to continue to promote that. Can the electric grid withstand the additional demand that we're talking about from vehicles because there are already stories of brownouts and blackouts on the West Coast? I'm not convinced of that, Jeff. And I think, as we saw in Texas, which was a bit of an unusual situation when they had their cold snap there, but it should be a wake-up call that our grid, our capacity issues need to be reviewed. We need to make sure, as we have more and more electric vehicles that are going to come online, the security of our energy production and when it comes to electric, I'm not satisfied we're there yet, and as we bring on more of this energy capacity, that needs to be looked at and it needs to be scrutinized more than anything else. The last point that I would make on the on the EV stuff is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about their impact as it relates to carbon and their effect on the environment. we, we got to make sure we analyze that uh, the right way and metrics are being used to look at that the right way because there's still a lot of work yet to be done there. I know that you work on the subcommittee on trade of the ways and means, so Here's a big loaded question. What do we do with China? Well, it's a tough question because China is an adversary in many ways. Um, if you look from a national security standpoint, if you look from a economic standpoint, if you look from a technology standpoint, I mean, China continues to not abide by the same rules and standards that every other industrialized country in the world does. Uh, they rip us off when it comes to intellectual property, when it comes to technology, when it comes to cyber. And in many ways, they can't be a trusted ally. Now, on the reverse side, Jeff, they continue to buy a lot of corn and soybeans. Remember, China's got a middle class of between 500 and 600 million people. That's a huge market. We can't ignore that. Now, some of my colleagues would prefer that we go to a Cold War mentality with China. But China today is not what Russia was 30 years ago when we were in a Cold War with Russia. We are the two largest economies in the world. We can't ignore uh, an economy with, with that many folks in their middle class and that many buyers. And our farmers rely on that market over there. So my point is, how do you find that balance where we got to hold China accountable because they're, they're ripping us off on a daily basis in technology and in intellectual property and many of these other things? but yet we still want them as uh, buying our products. And I'm not sure there's an easy answer on it. 
uh, two things have to happen. We need to reform the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization. Uh, China has taken advantage of that. I'll give you an example. China was brought into the World Trade Organization in 2001. I obviously wasn't in Congress, but there was a lot of skepticism about bringing them in. Um, the argument was bring them in. They'll abide by the same rules and standards as us. They'll, they'll westernize their economy. Well, some of that happened, but a lot of it didn't. Um, we have had 19 cases against China in the agriculture space since they came in. We've won 18 of them, Jeff, because, again, it shows China doesn't abide by the same rules and standards. The problem is the WTO takes way too long to win a case, sometimes takes four years. So we need to reform the WTO. China can't be treated as a developing nation, which they are now. So we have to fix that and hold them accountable. We need to have them, uh, you know, held accountable, and that means getting them to be compliant. And, listen, I'm not a fan of tariffs, Jeff. I think tariffs are generally taxes. But Trump used tariffs against China to get them to come to the table to do the phase one deal. we got to use every arsenal in our toolbox to hold China accountable because they are, uh, for the most part, working against our interests from a national security standpoint and all these other sectors, um, and, and, and we need to do a better job of holding them accountable. Would you favor the Biden administration and Trade Ambassador Catherine Tai to look at joining the CPTPP? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do think we have to have a, a more of a multilateral approach when it comes to China. We need to work with our like-minded allies, particularly in the in the Asia region, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, work with them more more so than the Trump administration did to kind of um, try to corner China. We haven't done enough of that. So there is a divide between those who farm in the country and those who don't. And I understand that you're working with uh, our friends at the Illinois Soybean Association on a, a video series called The Life of the Soybean. What do you hope to accomplish here, Congressman? Well, I was proud to be asked to do that, uh, and it's been a great experience thus far. Uh, I remind folks, Jeff, Illinois has led the nation four out of the last five years in soybean production. We're awful proud of that. We're really educating the country, but also educating members of Congress, their staffs, on what goes into a, a soybean farm, uh, from, from planting through application of product to um, maturing of a crop into harvest. The soybean series, in partnering with them, is a way, again, to educate folks on the importance of what we do to feed the world and the byproducts that soy goes into, and, and that's why I got involved. Congressman, it is a tremendously busy time uh, across uh, rural America and the planting of the season, uh, and it's also busy in Washington. And we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today you have the last word, sir. Well, listen, uh, great to be on with you, Jeff. Thanks for the opportunity to visit with you. Just want to wish all of our uh, farmers and families out there a, a wonderful planting season and hope for a, a very successful crop this year and want to make sure everyone stays safe. Our thanks to Illinois 18th District Representative Congressman Darren LaHood, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer is helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Learn more at cropscience.bayer.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.